Well, I've had bronchitis this week, <laughs> and my wife and girls forbade me to talk yesterday. And I live in a house with four women, and I didn't realize how much I really like to run my mouth until yesterday. And I'm over, I'm not contagious, but I'm on medication, so I'm on medication. I'm not allowed to talk all day yesterday, and they knew it. So they just shot at me every opportunity they could. So you're going to get whatever you get today because of that. But I am so incredibly humbled to be here today. Um, going back and looking at the pictures and then uh, seeing the saints who have been here a long time. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just incredibly humbled and overwhelmed that this whole thing called the church works. It's just, it's just an amazing thing. The organization, the organism of the church is just amazing. Because this thing here in this north end has been pumping spiritual blood into the community for a hundred years. That is amazing. And you really ought to be rejoicing in that. And rejoicing that you are still vibrant and still working and still doing that effort is just, that is something... That is a moment when you stand, you, you fall to your knees and you just go, God, I don't get you because you blow my mind. Because God does blow your mind. And I don't care what they say out in the world. I mean, when you meet God and you get to know him and then you see something like this that has worked for 100 years and you realize that it's worked on the backs of flawed people who make mistakes and we all have failings and we have personality conflicts and all this kind of stuff. And this still works. You've got to just say that's a God thing. I can't figure it out. So I'm just going to give him credit. Okay, so, so just remember that. As we, and what I would like to do today is if you wanted to call this something, I would call this markers that leave a mark in your life. And I did that for you, Mark. Okay. <laughs> I mean, coming up here today, I'm thinking, and I say that to T. Ken. She goes, what, Mark? Toby markers. Okay, it works. So if you leave here and you can't remember anything, just think. He said something about Mark and the pastor. I don't know. But that's what the sermon was about. So markers that leave a mark in your life. And, and I'd, I'd like to share with you both a story from the Bible that will help with that and also some stories. And, and I'm just going to be personal with you today because I remember my time here. And it's been over 50 years ago. I mean, I was born and raised in this church. And if you go back and look at the pictures of when that, um, the old building was in use, you'll see over in this front corner here, you'll see about two or three rows of boys. And just look at the looks on their faces because it tells everything. I mean, Greg, it was sad. <laughs> but we're all just like, you know, doing these goofball looks and stuff. And it's like... That's going to go down in history, you little <laughs> nut jobs. <laughs> but, but that's us sitting over in the corner, you know, uh, Ronnie Page, Ronnie Torrance, Chopper, Greg, myself, and Jimmy Runyon, and all these little yahoos that were sitting there. And when I got here this morning, I just had to go see Jean, and I had to remind her again, do you remember grabbing me by the ear? And she goes, oh, more than once. <laughs> and we would be down in that back hallway and it was always Ronnie Page's fault 
I don't know if he's here today, but it was always his fault. But uh, we just felt like, you know, Ronnie was a year older than me and my circle of hombres, and so we followed his lead. And my parents would say, yeah, my parents would say, well, if Ronnie told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? And it was like, well, it kind of depends on the bridge, I guess. I don't know. If Ronnie said it wasn't far, I guess we'd go. So we always felt like we had to teach the younger ones a lesson, and so, yeah, we'd catch them down in that back hall, and we'd teach. And we'd see this dark shadow over our shoulders, and that was it. And something would grab our ears and toss us, up, bring us up here to the pastor. And if you knew how J.C. Durr preached to be ushered into his private quarters was like, God's going to be there too, and we're going to die today. And Ronnie was always cool and calm. And the rest of us always fell apart, you know, so we were the ones that squealed. He did it. He started it all. So we were hauled in there, and J.C., I don't remember that J.C. was that hard. It was Jane that scared us. And she was always there in the shadows catching us. Well, that was a, and she left a mark. That was a marker that left a mark in our lives. But when I came this morning and I saw her, I just, uh, my heart just, you know, they started, they, they started or took over the ministry of this church and they were there. And that's when I was a boy and I got saved and I got baptized and I started my faith. It was under their ministry. And I just never forget that. Back in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Jacob. And you know his story, so I can't tell you all of it. We don't have that much time. But uh, he's, he's cheated his brother. He's called the deceiver. He's on the run, heading north to get out of his country. And uh, <coughs> I'm sorry. And uh, to get away and to uh, his mother has sent him north. And as he gets to the end of the promised land... He's all by himself and he falls asleep. He has nothing to his name. And he falls asleep and in the night he has a, a dream and a vision and God speaks to him and he says, Jacob, I am the God of Isaac, God of Abraham, and I have blessed your fathers and if you honor me and you take care and you do what you're supposed to and you, and you follow me, that this land that you are leaving behind, this is the promised land and I've promised it to your generations and when you come back here, this land will be here, and I will be your God. And this is the first time Jacob and God have had a conversation. And when Jacob gets up in the morning, his, his mind is just blown, and he goes, my goodness, I'm at the door of heaven. And so he, he takes a rock, and he sets it up, and he pours the rock he was sleeping on, and he pours oil over it, and he, he, he sanctifies the place, and he marks the spot. He says, this is the spot where I met God. It's the door to heaven. Now, he didn't know that he was like exiting the door at this moment, but it's a, a meeting that he has with God. And so he sets up this stone, and he says, he made a vow, and he said, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. 
And so, you know, Jacob goes and he, he, he meets Laban and he works for Laban seven years and, and he gets Leah and then he gets Rachel and he, he has uh, 12 sons and one daughter and his herds and, and everything grows and everything he's owning. And Laban's a bigger deceiver than Jacob, okay? And they have this going back and forth conflict thing going on. And Jacob is trying to outmaneuver Laban and vice versa, but Laban's better at the game than he is. And finally, Jacob decides it's time to go back home. It's been over 20 years, and he's ready to go back to his homeland and to his father's house. And so he just secretly packs everything up and, and moves, which is incredible because when you read the story, you see how much he has. It's just over, it's mind-boggling. He's got camels and goats and and donkeys, and sheep, and cattle of all kinds, and men servants, and maid servants, and these tents, and these wives, and their servants, and etc., etc., etc. So he packs up, and he starts leaving, and he gets about a three-day lead, and Laban finds out, and he takes out after him. God says, don't you mess with Jacob. And <clears throat> in Laban's terms, Jacob has broken a contract. In, David's ter- or in, in Jacob's terms, he's going back home and taking what he belongs, believes belongs to him. And so he, finally he gets free and he comes back into the country. And as he does, night is falling and he sends his herds and stuff on ahead and his servants. And the next day he's going to meet Esau. And the last time he saw, he, he saw Esau, Esau said, I'm going to kill you. So that's what's on his mind. Okay, I don't know what you went to bed thinking about, but that's what he's thinking about. And so he's thinking, well, tomorrow could be a bad day for the wife and kids and me. And because usually in those days, somebody comes and attacks you and they take all the plunder and they kill you and the kids and the wives and everything. They take all your heirs and everything like that. So, <coughs> so he's thinking this could happen. And he moves everybody away and he goes back by himself again, just himself with nothing. The way he left is the way he comes back. And that night, he has a different dream. And you'll remember how the story goes that a man comes and he begins to wrestle with Jacob. Uh, The story says, So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? And he answered, the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but it will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. I I was always confused about that. I mean, you're wrestling with an angel. Why would the angel let you prevail? And the point of the story is that Jacob had been a taker. And he had lived his life up to this point by his own skill and wits. And he had always been good at that game. He had outmaneuvered everybody. His brother Esau, his father-in-law Laban. And so far, it had done him well. Even when he was up there, do you remember the story about he puts the stakes in the ground so the herds will come and only breed certain kinds and stuff? I read that and, 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 and I did some study on it and, and I found out it was all, that was just superstition. Jacob was just trying something. He was among pagan people. He was trying to outwit them. But a chapter later, when he wants to tell his wives about all that he has, he says, 
God blessed me and made all this happen. He realizes, okay, I tried something. It really wasn't effective. It was just a superstitious thing. In the end, God has blessed me and done all this stuff. See, this is the revelation that's happening to Jacob at this moment in his life. And at this moment in his life, he's wrestling with God. And God, the angel of God, is wrestling back on Jacob's terms. And then the angel pops him in the hip and in essence is saying, buddy, I could do a lot more if you want to mess with me. But what I want you to understand is you've wrestled with God and you've wrestled with men. I want to bless you. It's my will. But not on your terms. I want to bless you on my terms. And Jacob develops a limp that stays with him the rest of his life. And the angel leaves him, but changes his name before he does. Now, there's two things I want you to notice about this story. When does God meet Jacob? As he's leaving the promised land, and as he returns. It's a big set of parentheses. And in the middle is this time in Jacob's life when he is living on Laban's terms, living on kind of man's time, doing things a certain way. But in both cases, Jacob has marked his life as he left and his life as he came back. And he never strayed from God. But at the second event of his life, Jacob kind of moves from a place in life where he doesn't just know God and know who God is, but now he knows God. Now he is suddenly aware that God has this deep plan for his life and this purpose and that God is working in his life and everything that has happened and he's about to re-enter into the land where God is and as he comes back into that land, God is saying, you left here and you knew that I was the God of your fathers. Now I'm your God. And at this place... Jacob seals this relationship with God and he he builds this altar and he marks this spot. But isn't it interesting that this time, instead of just marking a place, he's marked for the rest of his life. You can't look at him and not know. As a matter of fact, the children of Israel from that point on would never eat the sinew out of the joint hip of an animal in reverence of the fact that Jacob had met God and God had marked him. You see, you go through life and you leave a mark, but marks are left on you also. I remember those early times as a little kid here. And I remember, I I can't remember being baptized so much. I remember the communion, the first communion after that, and I I feel like it was the same Sunday because I, I, I just kind of remember we got baptized and we da- went down and we were thinking, oh boy, now we get to take communion, okay? Because that was my, our parents' kind of guide. And I remember that me and my buddy were sitting on the front row and if you look at those pictures, you'll kind of see that like my buddies are always looking at me with this grin and they're always trying to get me to laugh. Because I'm the kid in church that couldn't laugh quiet. And I, but I don't know why you'd try to get me to laugh because then the whole congregation would turn around. But 
Anyway, I remember our first communion because my friend, we took the communion, and then he stuck the cup on the end of his tongue. And you, different parents discipline differently, right? Jack and Jenny Wilson, mostly Jenny Wilson, was a non-confrontational disciplinarian. She would just, now mom, I'm just, you can just not listen to these parts if you want to, okay? But she would just look down the row at you like this with this disappointment look on her face that was supposed to crush your heart and make you feel like you would never do that again in your life. And I think it worked a few times, but not many. Whereas my friend's parents, his mother was a quick and swift disciplinarian. And as soon as he put that cup on his tongue, a hand from out of nowhere went pop across his head. And that cup shot, and he had a look in his face. And I began to believe that communion was important. <laughs> and through the years, you know, I began to understand the significance and importance and, and you know, that Christ's blood and body, and it is very important. But that was my first communion, and I'll never forget that one. One Wednesday night, we were over in the, the sanctuary. They over there, we, we had the Wednesday nights over there. And at that point, Ted Morgan had come and taken over as pastor. And uh, so once again, our little band of outlaws, we were now in middle school, decided we would soap Otter Creek's windows. And so we followed our brave leader over there. You young kids are not supposed to take any of this as positive feedback. This is negative stuff. I want you to understand that. And we're going somewhere with all this. And so we slipped out and we got over there and we soaked windows and we were really going to town and we saw the shadow in the hallway of a janitor coming. And we broke like crazy and ran straight from the back of that building to the back of this one. We were so smart. And down the back stairways, and we kind of split into different areas. There was four of us, and made our way kind of up through here, and came and sat down in the back row. And we looked around, and I was like, we got away with that. That one's great. Until Ted got up and said, well, I guess we have some boys who think it's fun to soak the school windows. And every set of eyes in that service turned around and looked at the four of us. And, of course, Jenny Wilson did that disappointing look. My friend got beat to death on the way home. <laughs> but eventually, you know, you start growing out of all the crazy kid stuff and, and, and you get into late junior high and high school. And in high school, um, we started... My parents had been the youth workers here, volunteers for like 18 years until... Me and my siblings joined the youth group. And I never could figure that out. I thought you would want to be with your kids at home and at church, guiding and disciplining them. But they quit working the youth group at that point. And they, I think they, it wasn't long until they actually hired a professional to come along. But I started getting a little more serious about God. And, 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 and that was a very interesting time, both in Christianity, the... the um, youth were starting to get more actively involved, more interested and more joining together in bodies of the believers. And, and, um, and I invited a friend of mine that had been a friend through middle school and high school to come to church. And his name was Rick Welch. And, 
And he started coming, and through the ministry, he got saved. And Rick's parents were adversarial to the gospel. And uh, I really wasn't welcome at their house. And, and so Rick would come, and he grew in his faith. And uh, about the time Rick turned about 40, uh, he sat up one morning to get dressed for work, and, and he bent over to tie his shoes and just fell backwards, instantly dead. And uh, it's just one of the hardest things in the world. And I went to the funeral, and I did not know that somewhere along that time when we were teenagers in early college, his younger sister started coming and came to Christ. And his younger sister married a, a guy who was studying to be a preacher. And they got married and started a church. And they won Rick's whole family to Christ. And when I went to the funeral, his father, who had always been angry and hostile, was the most gentle creature. His parents were just totally, like, just, just, they were like saints. And it was, it was all because this ministry was here and Rick came here. And that was just one guy. And somewhere along about that time, about late middle school, there was a girl named, gal named Jean Medley that started coming here. And she was uh, older than us. But she was kind of like a mentor type. And, and she came through here and she got saved and she grew in her faith. And, and she decided to go to Liberty, um, which was at like Lynchburg College at that time. But it was a Christian school. And she stayed there and she kind of grew in their ministry there. And one summer she calls, summer of my junior year, and she says, J.R., why don't you come to Guatemala on a missions program with us? And I said, well, okay. And I was heading this way with my life, you know. I had J.R.'s ABC plan going. And she said, and I said, okay, I'll come for two weeks. And I went down there, and we lived in a base, this tent city base, and we built churches in the mountains and ate dehydrated food, and it was rough, Outdoor um, porta potties, just big tents. Our showers were barrels, you know, and you pulled a string. And I just loved it. And I ended up staying the whole summer and riding a school bus from Guatemala to Virginia to come home. Riding on, they had a school bus, that's what they got us around on. And it just totally changed my life. I came back, I, I changed my plans in high school. I signed up to go to Liberty as soon as I could get there. And I went to the college. And I ended up just as a fluke trying up for the group. And I wasn't that good, Mark. I just wasn't. And they came to me the last day of school. And they said, um, well, we've got space for a guy that could do media and sing if you want to. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Now, in the summer, so I was just supposed to be like an alternate. In the summer, this other kid ahead of me... Um, had a moral indiscretion and got kicked out and I got bumped up to full-time. So I just lucked into this kind of full-time thing and got to go to the, a Christian college. And for four years, they took us all over the world doing outreaches. And this church supported me financially through that whole four-year program of helping pay for my mission trips overseas. And we even got to come here and sing once. And that was a great blessing. So we got to go out and to do those things. And, and that just really kind of totally altered my life plan and took me in a whole different direction. When I came back here, 
I was one of those guys who left college without a wife. Christian college. And that was unusual. Because that just didn't happen that much. And I thought, I'm going back to Terre Haute. I don't know if there's any Christian girls there. (laughs) I just mean that. I just, you know. But you're thinking, okay, I'm leaving without a wife. Everybody else has got a wife. I'm wifeless. And I came back, and it was probably because, Mark, I wasn't grown up yet enough to have a wife. And there was no woman that should be put through that for the next three years. Because I came home, and Greg and my brother who are the same age, uh, they're a few years younger than me, and, and I had a friend, and we were all just a bunch of dumb goofballs doing anything and everything and acting up. But we were actively involved in the ministry here, and then all of a sudden, one day, this aching in my heart began to grow and said, you're alone, and you don't want to be alone forever. <laughs> and you're going to be like 25, and your children will call you grandfather. So you better start thinking about this. And also there happened to be this arrangement made by my brother and a best friend of his to meet his sister. And I said, I'm not going to date anybody's sister. And my dad laughs and goes, almost everybody's got a sister. You're going to have to date somebody's sister. So I met this girl and she did not like me. Her dad took took me up to meet her and course he's the nicest guy in the world he'll talk to anybody she's standing under a basketball goal I had kept her brother out skiing the whole night before a basketball game for his high school and he played terrible and she had come all the way from Tennessee to watch him and thought that I was the most arrogant stupid self-centered individual you could ever meet I don't know where she got that (laughs) I have no idea and so she just said hi and like bye in the same sentence and walked away but anyway she gave me a second chance and I did much better that time and pretty soon we were engaged and we sat right back there on a Sunday night and announced our engagement to this church and it was about six months later that we stood right here and said our vows and by the way guys do you remember your anniversary what your date of marriage is August 11th 1984 I'll never forget that I figured out the reason, Mark, that pastors, when they're doing your marriage, always tell you your name. I, J.R. Wilson, take T.K. It's because you don't remember anything that day. And you would probably say, I, George McGovern, uh, wait a minute, I'm J.R., I, what? Uh, yeah, I want to marry this guy. Can we just say that? <laughs> so anyway, we were married here. And that was a gigantic marker in our life. And within a few months, we were serving in the youth ministry of this church. A church called us to come and be their youth pastor and we left here for a little while and pretty soon they called and asked us if we wanted to be their senior pastor and we came back here to be ordained and to be sent out from this church as a pastor in that church. Through those, all those years, there's so many things I can remember about this place, about the people in this place that... Um, Clarice Milam, who was our Sunday school teacher way back there when we were just little blonde-headed terrorists in the basement. And I think we had Joe Claretto, too, at one time. And different people who taught us and who planted seeds and who gave themselves. You see, this is how this, this whole thing of this body of believers works. I mean... 
how many are left here? There's like, you know, half a dozen or three or four are left from those original groups that were here 50-something years ago. And things have changed. And yet, think about it. Things have changed. There's all kinds of new blood here. There's, and you know what I notice in the pictures? There's a lot of kids in the pictures of this church. And that's a great thing. So, so much changes. So much life changes. And, and families grow up here and then the kids get married and they move on. And they go and they contribute in ministries and churches in other places, other cities, and other towns. And this thing of Christianity, this thing of the gospel and of faith is just so incredible. How God marks you and then leaves you to mark other people along the way. And you go out of a place like this and you do the things that you're supposed to do out there in the world. You meet other people and, and you have an impact on those other people's life. I get to go every Wednesday morning to Sarah Scott Middle School and do a little club with Campus Life. And it's... Once they close Chauncey Rose, it's, it's kind of one of the rougher schools. We get some of the t- tougher cases in there. And every week we have about 40 little uh, yahoos who come. And some of them are honest and they tell me, I come for the donuts. I come for a donut. I don't care. But what I do is I get up and I just tell them a story. And, and sometimes I don't even tell them the names to see if they'll get who the story's about. It's David and Goliath or something like that. And to tell them these stories and, and then see them begin to understand and begin to hear that faith. And that guy's, well, where did I learn all that stuff? It all started back here when I was a kid. To go and to teach kids and to plant into kids' lives. It's, it's like just giving back what was given to you. Just, I, I can't say thanks enough to Jean Durr that she caught me by the ear and stopped my life of crime. You know, I, I mean, you just can't say not enough of, of thank you that you and JC came. Or Mark and Tracy, that you come and you serve and you, you do the things you do to the, for this body of believers. But what you can do is turn around and plant those seeds and mark other people's lives. And leave things upon them or things inside of them that grow and develop into their lives. And I know that it's, it's tough for young people. And as, if you look out there, you know, they're, they're telling us some kind of scary stuff that between 20 and 30, a lot of young people are kind of moving away from the faith. But you know what happens, and, and I, I hate it that it has to happen this way, but... Then they meet somebody and they get married and they have a kid and they look at that kid and they think, I grew up in church. And that didn't hurt me. I need to get to church for my kid as much as for myself. And people stray and come back and people fail and they turn back around and people make mistakes and that's what grace is all about. I tell my kids, if we could be perfect, then we wouldn't need God and forgiveness, would we? But that's what grace is all about. I look at Jacob's life and I see a guy who, who came through and, and he lived on his terms for an awful long time even though he loved God and he knew God was his God and that they were gonna, there was a relationship there and all that. Still, Jacob comes back and the markers he's left in his life become reminders to him for the rest of history for his people 
that God has got a hold on your life. He's got a mark on you, and he's not going to let that mark go. You don't serve this building. You know, you really don't serve this body. You serve your father. You're a steward. And a steward is somebody who considers that nothing I have belongs to me. It all belongs to him, and I serve it. My kids are not mine. They're my trust. They were given to me, and I steward my responsibility to serve them. In this body, in this location, you are stewards of this place. And your stewardship is to leave a mark. It's to make sure that from the moment a child enters, either through the crib or, or they come through their parents at a young age, that you don't forget that the most important thing they will ever need to hear in their lives is that God loves them and they need him or nothing else makes sense. And you plant that seed first and then you begin to work on that seed and to grow it and to cultivate it because what you want is for them to turn 20-something and begin to say, okay, how do I become a mark maker in people's lives? And that's what we're all about here. I can't tell you how humbled I am to be given the opportunity to come today and just say to you, to Gene Durr, to the, so many others who, who came before, that if you hadn't come, I don't know if I'd be here. But because you did, there's a lot of you in me. You may not like that, but there's a lot of you in me. And my life matters and it has become meaningful because you planted and you watered and you grew seeds. And there's seeds all over this country because you were here. So don't forget that heritage. And I pray God gives you a hundred more years. And I pray, Mark and Tracy, that your part and your time in this whole travel and journey through is rich and full. And that lives are changed. And that people, that, that you get it. That there's a lot of little knot-headed JRs down there in the hallway that need you to make sure this keeps happening. I thank you so much for that. I would like to do something for you. Before you come, Mark, and close, I would just like to pray for you and give God honor and praise. Father, this morning I come and I am so grateful I look down the hallways. And I can almost see the times and see them through the eyes of an eight-year-old child. And 
And I remember so many faces of so many adults who were just coming and working and giving of their gifts and their offerings and their time. And they were speaking words into our lives in the best way they knew how. And many of them, all of them had flaws and failures, but through all that, your word came and it touched little bitty lives and it opened doors. And that was all you needed. You just needed somebody to speak. The rest was up to you and your spirit came then into those lives and began to grow and little kids became teenagers who began to get thirsty and hungry for more meaning in life. And then those lives began to seek out mates that had that same hunger. And those began to grow into families and and all that time those older ones were growing older but they were still coming. And all that time buildings were painted and carpet changed and things fixed so that that work could keep going. Instruments were bought and just so many things that had to happen. And there were church dinners and there were fellowships and there were things that just made us believe that we were in a good place. We were around people who cared. And moms and dads began to grow older and leave us and, and it became our time. And we stepped up and we made some of the same silly mistakes because we're all flawed. And yet, in spite of all of our failures, this place grew and new people came. And those of us that were now adults began to serve and to grow and to have children and to see them need to hear. And some of those same old ones were still giving and still coming and still serving until their last days. And so many of them have gone on before us now, but oh goodness, we know they're up there just having a wonderful time. And someday we'll all get together and the faces will all be so fresh and new. God, I thank you that you've kept this place alive a hundred years and it's never lost its focus on the true the Jesus Christ that is our Savior and the God who sent him and loves us. So God, I pray a prayer of blessing upon these people because they've loved you and they've served you through conflicts and differences of opinions and all of that, they've still loved you. So I pray a blessing upon them and I pray and I lift them up that for the future You'll just take them on. This body will continue to grow and another young child will come in the door and another seed will be planted. And years from now, this will all still be happening even after we're gone. I honor you for that. And I thank you that I got the opportunity to share a glimpse of my life that might inspire hope. In your name I pray, amen.
Well, I'm standing here in this place on the original site where the ministry of the First Baptist Church of North Terre Haute began, like in 1913. When you talk to people like Lou Johnson and so many others who remember the early days of this ministry, they talk about the creek bank, and here it is. This is the place where that ministry began. That group of people who had a heart for North Terre Haute and for the need for the proclamation of the gospel. And I couldn't help but think about Acts chapter 16 where Luke records for us the beginnings of the church at Philippi. It started in, in much the same way.